had the good fortune of studying in a yeshiva. They studied in the yeshiva of Shem Ve'eber, a yeshiva which had to be like ours because already at that age it was able to incorporate the teachings of Yafet in a yeshiva in the halls of Shem. Who was the Rosh Yeshiva in the yeshiva of Shem? And from the parsha today, we are told by some of our Chachamim that Malki Tzedek was the Rosh Yeshiva because he was shame. He was the forebearer of our people and other peoples who came to study in the yeshiva. Malki Tzedek Melech Shalem. The yeshiva was in Yerushalayim, and it would inspire yeshiva for years, for generations. It would inspire Talmidim, and it would inspire us till today. Of Malki Tzedek Melech Shalem, it spoke of him as the ultimate in Russia yeshiva. Because he was a Rosh Yeshiva who was a gifted singer and presenter, because the Gemara says that he was one who wrote with David Melech, the Tehillim, which, the Tehillim which are so expressive of how we feel toward the Rabbana Shalom and toward our faith. With Malki Tzedek, we see the one who was able to be a Kohen, who was able to serve his people as a Rav and a spiritual leader, because he was a Kohen Le'el Elyon. He was a Kohen to the Almighty. He was a Kohen of the highest caliber. Kohen Le'el Elyon. But he was a Kohen who was not satisfied with serving alone. He was a Kohen who was dedicated to those who he served because it's Hotzi Lechem V'yayim. He brought out bread and wine. He brought out sustenance and he brought spirit. He was able to combine them both together. We are honored that we have our Rosh Yeshiva, that we have our president that we have a Rab Dr. Nahum Lam. We have a president who has excelled in every field of knowledge. We have a president who has excelled in every form of the rabbinate. He has been an example for us. He has been an example for Yiddishkeit. And truly, he has embodied Yafet in the halls of shame. Malkit Sedek, Malchu. His reach has been a royal reach. But his friendship to us has been even as soft and as fragrant as a hedge of roses. <laughs> May I just introduce by saying these few words from the Parsha and maybe translate them a little differently. Vayitain lo ma'aser mikol. It really doesn't say who gave the ma'aser. So I'd like to translate as this way. Rabbi Lam is celebrating now his first decade as the first of our rabbis, as the president of Yeshiva University. And I'd like to read the Pasuk like this. Vayitain lo ma'aser mikol. He gave us ten. He gave us ten of the best. He gave us ten of the best years of leadership. Bakol, he gave everything. Ma'aser is the decade. And so it is my honor as chairman of this convention to present our rabbi, Rab Nachum Lech. Thank you very much, uh, Rabbi Rakowitz. I have faith and no doubt <laughs> that you are a proper representative of this good society. Uh, 
I tried a Kriya Benayim when Rabbi Rakowitz started by referring to me as Malki Tzedek, an honorary degree which I gratefully and humbly accept, uh, that he was really following up on Alvin Marcus's references during dinner about the need to support yeshiva. So I thought, by Malki Tzedek, then by Yitem Masa Mikol, and we can call cards and be done with it. But I'm very grateful to all of you for coming and for bearing with me. I'm a good soldier. If I'm given an assignment, I try to do exactly what I'm asked to do. And the problem that was assigned to me, the theme that was assigned to me, was models in Tanakh for family life. I do believe that family life is a theme of this conference, and what I intend to do is to speak about my theme. Because contemporary problems in family life throughout the country and throughout the Western world have infected uh, Orthodox Jewish life centrist Orthodox Jewish life, right-wing Orthodox Jewish life, left-wing Orthodox Jewish life. They've infected all of us as well. It is a sign of an unstable society, uh, a society of rapid transitions, of ever-increasing vicissitudes that come in an accelerated pace, and therefore a time of vast change. I must share with you something that I mentioned to a group at Yeshiva, the, the, it's not really a, I'm not in front of the Yashim Kodesh, of the Aaron Kodesh, so I can quote different kinds of sources. Dean William Ralph Ing, the Catholic, the Anglican Dean in England who died about 30 years ago, says that when our first parents were expelled from paradise, Adam turned to Eve and said, my dear, we are living in an age of transition. Uh, and since then, we have been living in ages of transition. But they become sharper, they become more frequent, and they have become more consequential. A few years ago, a very well-known Rav and a very, very fine Talmud Chocham who does a great deal of psak announced, and it was published in the Algemeiner Journal, he's at Ovenborough Park, he announced that there is an alarming rise in divorce and broken homes amongst families of B'nai Yeshiva, Talmidim of Kerlalim, generally this, this whole machana is, he admits to it, he's a musmach of our yeshiva, <laughs> and that it often is the fault of the B'nai Yeshiva. They don't know how to conduct themselves. About a week later, a retraction appeared because he was threatened, assaulted, and forced to retract. But that does not change the nature of the problem, the scope of the problem, or the quality. You can silence him. I'm sorry that he allowed himself to be silenced. I'm glad that he spoke up and he said what had to be said. So the problems are real, and what I want to do is offer you no sociologist solutions, no mar marriage council solutions, no anecdotage about my own family. What I would like to do is just refer to Tanakh to interpret what we can interpret and see what it yields for us. What I plan to do is take three vignettes from Tanakh, one from each of the others, from Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, and let each yield its own insights. I will refer to Rishanim. In some cases, I'm going to swim alone. And that's the part that you're going to find most objectionable. Okay, let me begin with Avraham, Reish's Tezayim. Got to begin, after all, with our own set. Test sign. 
Sarai, Eshes Avram cannot have any children, and so she decides to offer to Avraham or Avram Hagar, her handmaiden, and Ulai Ibana Mimena. There are two pshatim in this. I mean, take a modernist view. Either it means she will adopt them, and therefore the Yichas will follow her, or she will she will be able to have a baby as a result of adopting one, which is what really happened. And uh, as a dutiful husband, Vayishma Avram Lakol Sarai, and then she finds out that in Pasuk Dalet, Vayavayel Hagav Atar Vateraki Harasa Vatekel Gvirta Beineha, Hagav becomes uppity. Vatomer Sarai Al Avram Chamosi Alecha, etc. Vayomer Avram Al Sarai Hinei Shivchasech Biyodech Hasila Hatov Beinayach. Okay, she's yours. Do whatever you will, he says to his wife. And Sarah persecutes her, oppresses her, until Hagar has to run away. And then the Malach finds her and so on and so forth. Question. Was Sarah acting in an ethical fashion? Is it possible to justify her? Somebody shall him justify her. They say it's uh, Hagar who started this. She had no right. She was a maidservant. She had no right to act disrespectfully towards Sarah, and therefore Sarah, Sarah as she was then called, had the right to oppress her and cause her to leave the home of Abraham. Fine, so may it be. However, there are Rishonim who fault Sarah and say that she was wrong and she committed the moral crime. I refer to Radak and Namban, and I would like to focus on them for this third of the talk. That Andak and Amban maintain that Sarai did not act properly. Let me read to you the words of Radak. Velo nohaga Sarai baze lo lemidas musar, velo lemidas chasidus. She acted neither ethically nor as a pious person. Lo musar, he explains, ki afapi she Avraham mochalla al kvodo. Even though Avraham gave her permission to do whatever she wishes, her task, Sarah, was her responsibility was to pull back and not to oppress it because of the covenant of Avraham. Then he quotes Achosid, which he probably means uh, Rabbi Nabachia, who said that the essence of greatness is not to do what you can do. To be meichel, to fatzichten, as they say in Yiddish, and not not simply It's a different kind of thing. It's a, even a military strategy. If you if you have your your opponent in a corner, back up, because if he's in a corner, then you he has no way out. He's going to get wild. So in in matters of musar, never do all that you legally can do. Never exploit it, and she exploited. So therefore, it was not musar. The long midas chasidu says that adak. Yes. So it's neither Musa nor Chasidus. Neither Musa because she had no Derecheres for her husband. This, after all, this was her husband's wife and other wife. And not Chasidus because Chasidus means not to do all that you can do. It's a kind of, a kind of uh, self-restraint uh, the Radak therefore faults Sarah 
Is that the whole story? Do you have kashas only on Sarah? Avram is the kasha. After all, Avram was uh, was the master of the home. It was he had the right? He had the right to say to her, "Don't persecute her." He's, he is the one who said, "Asilakatobeinayach." Why did he do that for? Mashma from the Radak that Avraham can be excused, and the excuse is that Abraham was faced by two conflicting demands upon him. On the one hand was a demand of an ethical demand, a moral obligation. How do you allow Hagar to suffer? On the other hand, and contravening this, was another good, namely Sholem Bayes. And in the conflict between Sholem Bayes and, and this particular ethical value, it doesn't mean that any ethical deal, murder or not, but this particular one, Avraham chose to favor Sholem Bayes over this infraction, this ethical infraction, and that Adak apparently justifies it. Now Ramban. Our mother, our grandmother sin. The gam Avraham Hashem Avraham in other words, Avraham was wrong. He had no right to permit this. The onish was that the child of Hagar was Yishmael, who would forever after, until this very day in 1985, uh, torment and trouble the children of Avraham Avinu. So Avraham, I mean Ramban, finds no excuse for Avraham. What do you see here? That in a problem that we often face, we people who come to us, when do you when do you put your foot down? When for Shalom Bayez do you allow an well a non normative situation to prevail? I'm, I'm using the, the minimum kind of language I can. An Avla? And or do you say that Sholem Bayez does not have that power? Sholem Bayez means yes I will go to the movies, yes I will not go to the movies, yes I will visit your mother, I yes I will not visit your mother. There Sholem Bayez prevailed. But where there's an ethical decision to be made, Sholem Bayes, I'd kind of know further. This apparently is the problem between the Radak and the Ramban. The Ramban says, if there is a, a, uh, a moral judgment to be made, and if this moral judgment impinges or, or encroaches upon the domain of Sholem Bayes, so be it. Because it takes precedence over Sholem Bayes. The Radak, on the other hand, holds that Sholem Bayes is great enough of value that if you have to overlook a minor ethical infraction, we're not speaking about halachic here. I mean, not speaking about a halachic violation. I don't know if it's a halachic violation. It's a chait anyway. It's a chait ben adam lachavero. That, that uh, certainly uh, a minor infraction is tolerable within limits. So we have here a problem that often occurs. I certainly have met it very often. I think it's a, it's a common occurrence, frequent occurrence. And the point is when... The point is, do you do you opt for a shalom bias or do you opt for a more rigorous ethical stance? Uh, I'm not going to go further, merely to present uh, this vignette from the life of our Ramavino. You know, in this respect, I I think that sometimes you have to use intuition rather than intellectual judgment. I recall a statement in a letter by Rav Kook, the of the 50th yard site, after all, in one of his, his igros, he writes, and I forget what the situation was, maybe some of you will recall, some kind of scandal broke out in the issue. 
and our cook was ill. And in the letter, in the beginning of the letter, he writes, Vehinani kosev lo mipnei sheyeshli koach lichtov, ela mipnei sheyeshli koach lidom. I write not because I have the strength to write, but because I don't have the strength to keep quiet. So if you feel, I would say that the, the, the judgment should be, if the avla is of that nature, that you feel that you can't keep quiet, it's outraged, then don't keep quiet. And if you feel that it's, you know, after all, avlas come in tiny sizes and they come in the big uh, economy package. If you find that it's, it's, it's outrageous and your intuition, your intuitive reaction is that way, then certainly shalom bayis, important as it is for family life, uh, does not have the last call. We've gone out to, to Yitzchak and I think uh, perhaps more significant insights. We've got to told us. The brachas. Kov zayin. He's looking. Yitzchak. You have it? Kov zayin. Yitzchak is getting old. He's blind. And he calls... Esav and tells him, go ahead and do something for me. And he says, go and get me some venison, some tzayid, and uh, make me a good dinner, the kind that I like. This way I'll be able to relate to you and give you a brocha. And he goes and does it. Rivka overhears the conversation. I'm, I'm not telling you anything new. I just want to give the... Overhears the conversation of Yitzchak talking to Esav. And when Esau goes away, she calls in Yaakov, she hatches the plot, and disguise yourself, and I want you to get the bracha, after all, I know who you are, and uh, your father loves Esau, but you're my uh, yingle, and therefore I want you to do it. Yaakov accedes, and the, you know the whole, uh, we, we know the whole development, and he gives him a bracha. What bracha does he give him? And then when Esav comes, he says, he's terribly upset. He says, You have only one bracha. You gave a bracha to you, so you can't give a bracha to me. The kasha is an eyes in the kasha. So you gave, how many, I mean, how many of us dispense brachas? <laughs> we do it over the telephone, one after the other. I mean, some of us are experts in it, and our vocabulary is very rich in brachas, which is the way it should be. So why couldn't Yitzchak bring himself to give a bracha to, to Esav as well? See, he gives him a bracha. He gives him a bracha. Hinei mishmanei ores yeh meshavecha. Small bracha. Is that the end of the brachas? No, later on when Yaakov runs away, he comes to take leave of his father and he gives him a bracha too. In, in the Chavches. number of difficult kashas around here. First of all, Rivka's character and personality comes through clearly. Uh, the, there's a, there was a great book. I, I can't locate it, but I, I would like to, if any of you know where it is, buy it for me and I'll pay you back double. Many years ago, Maurice Samuel, certain people of the book, I can't get it. Good, I'm not, then I'm not going to pay you. You know why? It's probably my copy. I'm missing it. For years, I've been looking for it. He has a chapter. He, really, he's magnificent. I must say, he's magnificent. He has a chapter about Rebecca, about Rivka. The title of the chapter is The Manager. She is a great manager. 
She manipulates the whole situation from top to bottom. She finds men who are basically plastic, and she arranges everything. She's the great manager. But what, there, there are several questions here. First, you know, the whole, the whole story is really, is really a source book for, for anti-Semitism. And it has been used as a source book for anti-Semitism. Jews are deceitful, they're thieves. What they have, they've stolen, it didn't belong to them. Why doesn't the Torah say something about this? Why does the Torah offer a judgment that Lo Kenya this is wrong? It obviously was wrong. How can you how can you possibly defend this this whole deception uh, by Rivka? Second, and even the complicity of Yaakov. Second, why was Yitzchak fooled by all of this? Didn't he remember that Rivka had told him that that Rivka had been told by prophecy? That Rav Yavod Sa'ir, that Yaakov was supposed to be the, the, the favored one, it happened. When they both were misspelled and she went to the Rismet Hashem Veva, she was told, Rav Yavod Sa'ir. This is, this is, uh, he knew it beforehand. Why did he fall for the wiles of Esav? And why did he want to give the bracha to Esav when all along he should have known it belonged to Yaakov Avinu? Third, why didn't Yitzchak recognize the nature of his sons? Was it really so difficult? You have one son who's a Talmud Chacham and the other son is a Trumbanik. One goes uh, to the Vesvedrish and the other goes uh, with a gang that smokes pot and you have a doubt as which son you prefer or at least which son you give a bracha to? It's not understandable. And finally, I ask Esav's yavi. Why couldn't Yitzchak spare an extra bracha? Why not give them both brachas? What I'm, what I'm going to suggest is not my chiddush, it's based upon a collection of various commentaries, including Beno Yaakov, who was very, very insightful, especially Ambracious, plus a little bit of my own Sugachepet. I claim no originality of the parish, but only the pulling it together. You have three brachas here. The first bracha is v'yitan l'chah. Is this a material or is this a spiritual blessing? Despite all the chasidah shedrashas and mitala shemayim. And looking straight at Fabian Schoenfeld, he's going to remind me that the Svasemba says, the Yitam Lachalakim means that God should put in a lakus into you. And they even, I'm not beside the Hasidic Adrashas. Taking it. I'm not the <laughs> All right? I'm willing to grant that. But according to Shekhar, tell me. <laughs> according to the Pshutosh and Nikra, okay? The first bracha of Yitam is a chaymes, it's all, it's all gashmis. It's a gashmis, not that there's anything more than gashmis bracha, I'm sure we could use a few, and the treasury could use a few, and all of us could use a few, but this is the nature of the bracha. This bracha is given by whom to whom? By Yitzchak to whom? To Yaakov? To Yaakov as Esau. Second bracha. The second bracha is, what do we say? Mishmane Yaris, what is that? And now what is that? Material or spiritual? It's a material blessing from top to bottom. What about the third bracha? Is there a third bracha? This is not a material blessing. This is, this is Zera, this is Oretz, that is Israel. This is the posterity of Am Yisrael. 
This is given by Yitzchak to whom? As as Yaakov. Given the as Yaakov. See, the key to the whole story is two words. Birkas Avram. The other brachas Yitzchak could dispense like any chasidish ever. No difficulty. And that there was no kasher. Now, Esav's question was, was a non, as a non-starter. Avraham, Yitzchak had only one Birkas Avram that he could dispense. None other. Avraham gave his bracha to which son? Only one son. Yitzchak. Yitzchak had the bracha to give one child. And that was the Birkas Avram. And that bracha went to Yaakov Avinu. It did not go to Esav, even when Yaakov came disguised as Esav. That bracha means not just good wishes, or not even good wishes with a little bit of an assist from Yitzchak, because his tefillah is Niskabal B'Shemayim. This means I appoint you as the one in charge who is going to be the progenitor of the line that is going to take over Eretz Yisrael and constitute Am Yisrael, the Jewish people. Everyone knew this. The mother knew this, the father knew this, Yaakov knew this. All of them. Even Yitzchak knew this. Vaharaya, when Yaakov came before him as Esau, he did not give him Birchaz Avram. Only at the end, when he was sure who it is, then did he say, V'yitem l'cha as Birchaz Avram. So there was no mistake on Yitzchak's part. And Esau is wrong. Esau is not right. Did Esau deserve the Birchaz Avram? Why not? He sold it. It was a sale. There was a sale. What he got for it, I don't know. I mean, the Nizid Adashim, I don't think means that he sold it for a Nizid Adashim. That, that, it's, it's kind of comical to say that he sold it for a, for a, for a, for a Tepal Arbus. No, uh, you know, what I think really means he sold it to him without detailing what it was. The Nizid Adashim was probably a ceremonial meal to seal the deal. Like any covenant was sealed with any covenant is sealed with a meal. This was sealed. What did they eat? Arbus and the Torah doesn't tell you about the beer. But, uh, but this was not the Nizid Adashim was probably not the, the asking price or the selling price. It was a celebration of the formalization uh, of a final deal between us. Esav has no taina. Esav has absolutely no, no taina whatsoever. It, and Yaakov and, and why and, and the Bikas Avram, therefore, uh, out of the sale, why did Yaakov and, and do this? Not because this was the thing that did it. It was all along meant for Yaakov. Yaakov wanted, however, to have a legalization of the process. In the same way that Avraham Avinu know that Eretz Yisrael is his, but he made a Kenyan from the Bnei Ches. He wanted to have a, a legally binding right to what was his anyway. And the same way, Yaakov wanted to have a legally binding right to the Bikas Avram, which was promised to him anyway because of Yavot, so it was meant for him. Therefore, everything would have worked out well. And here you see how the tragedy... Uh, and, and here we're coming to the point. Everything could have worked out well. Yitzchak knew it belonged to Yaakov. Rizka knew it belonged to Yaakov. Yitzchak could have called Esav and says, my son, you should have a lot of oil. You know, Mishmanecha, you have all the oil you want, but Yaakov gets Eretz Yisrael. So, you know, you may have inflation, you may not have enough oil, but Eretz Yisrael is, is Yaakov's, and then that would have been settled the case, and the sin of Yaakov and Esav would have been avoided for 3,000 years. But it was not to be. It was not to be because apparently Rivka overmanaged. Rivka was overly aggressive. She meant well, uh, but had she not mixed in 
to the state of affairs, it appears obvious that Yaakov would have had the Birchas Avram without him. Even though, I mean, what he did gain because of his mother's intervention was that his material blessing would not have been as great as Vitan Lucha, it would have been somewhat of a lower blessing, but that was not the Ikah. That does not really count. What counts is Birchas Avram. And therefore, Yitzchak made no mistake. Yitzchak was exactly on target. He wanted to give the Birchas Avram to Yaakov. He gave the Birchas Avram to Yaakov. No mistake here. He, however, what he did want was not to lose Esau in the process. Yes, Yaakov deserves the line, the, the, the line of continuity from Avram Avinu. But I don't want to lose my other son. He wanted to draw him close. He wanted to save him. He wanted to save him by making him do things for him and therefore keeping up a relationship. He wanted to, uh, to be misogyn him. Uh, he, he, saw that, uh, he saw that he is a child who is wild, but you've got to, to help him. Or perhaps, as the Arachayim says, since according to the Agadah, when Yitzchak was lying on the Mizbeach, you know, and the Malachim cried and he became blinded, so he became blinded not only physically, maybe he became blinded also in the ability to judge Elam Hazadigazachim and in mundane affairs such as the conduct of children. <laughs> Whatever it is, he made no mistake. The entire tragedy of deceit, of, of questionable ethical doings, of historic fratricide and hatred came about because of a mistake. Because of a mistake. A mistake by Rivka, who thought that Yitzchak really prefers Esau and was going to give the Bichas Avram to Esau. That was her mistake. She meant well. She thought that the Bichas Avram was going to be given by Yitzchak to Esau because she saw that Yitzchak is getting close to Esau. She was afraid it would, it would be misbegotten. It belongs really to Yaakov Avinu. Uh, and therefore, she maneuvered the whole thing and set up a whole stage, the whole thing, so that Yitzchak should give it to Yaakov because she was afraid that the Bichas Avram would be going to... Right. Now, wait, 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 wait. I start off by asking an ethical question. There was deceit. There was sin. Why is there no punishment? Why doesn't the Torah censure them? The answer is the Torah never censures. In narrative, the Torah has a scrupulous literary style. It tells you a story. And you are expected to learn Musa from it. The Torah does not end up like Esau's fables by telling you a story and saying, this is the lesson that you have to learn from it. That's not the Torah's way. Because the Torah, what the Torah tells us is so multi-layered, so multifaceted. It has so many aspects that to reduce it to one lesson is to rob the Torah's story of its richness. So the Torah doesn't give you a judgment explicitly. What then does it do? It gives you plenty of judgment, but you have to look for it. Where do you find the judgment on Yitzchak, I'm sorry, on, on Rivka and on Yaakov? Very simple. Rivka, why did she do all this? Because of her great love for whom? What's the punishment? She never saw him alive again. She never saw him alive again. He had to go into exile. By the time he came back, she was dead. Yaakov. Yaakov was also not innocent in all this. He allowed himself to be pushed into something which was wrong. Is he punished? <laughs> what was his crime? That's the, the fine. Deception. Deception. Of? 
Of a father. The exception of a father. How come he was able to deceive him? Because his father was blind. How, what was the deception? Substitution of a younger for an older. In the light, in, in the darkness of night, love undeceived him by substituting a younger for an older. An older for a younger. Mida can I get Mida? There's an exact parallelism. If you only, if we only think about it properly, that, now if the Torah has said Yaakov was a bad boy, fairly meaningless. For the Torah gives us the, the whole development, and you see how the Yad Hashem works in the lives of people. That the Mida connected Mida is there in a parallel structure. It's so much more forceful. So Yaakov and Rivka certainly do not go unpunished. And however, it is done in a manner that that is that is not obvious, but it has to be sought. So as the Chazal say, Basramai Lomari Misoni, and she answers to him, Ba Achicha Bamirma, to change younger and older in darkness or blindness. Sava Hakabala says that when Lavan says to Yaakov, Lo Yayosa came b'mekomenu, Lo says it's abechira l'fnayatzira. He said, Yaakov, in your place, you pull such stunts. We don't do it here. You know, great, honorable oven. But that sarcasm is in the word We don't do such things here. No, we don't, we don't, uh, we aren't, we don't, we aren't such shady characters here. So here was the, the response to Yaakov by Lovan. Also, Yaakov, who was a favorite of his mother, carries the same the same pattern over to the next generation and, of course, the tragedy of Yosef. Also, Yaakov suffers from pangs of conscience. I don't want to go into it. Time does not permit. But when it comes to before Vayetze, read the Abarbanel's interpretation of the dream. The Abarbanel shows that the whole dream, it's, it's really remarkable. It's almost, almost a, a depth psychology analysis. He says, uh, Yaakov was so distressed by pangs of conscience that he had stolen the bracha from Esau and that's why he was suffering that he was near the point of collapse and the dream came as a direct response to say yes Yaakov you did the wrong thing but it's forgiven and now go on and live a normal life almost a prophetic therapeutic dream and and Ababanel does it with great brilliance showing how the dream comes to respond to the guilt feelings of Yaakov Avinu. What is the what is the family family lesson from what I'm doing exactly what the Torah said I said does not do? But let's pull it out. There's a whole tragedy that is developed here: personal tragedy, a family tragedy, and then a historic tragedy. Why? For one reason: because husband and wife didn't talk to each other. There was no communication between husband and wife. All that was necessary was for Yitzchak and Rivka to sit down and say, "Let's." turn off the television, let's close the door, and let's discuss our family. And in five minutes, the thing would have, would have appeared. But apparently, the kind of life they led with each other, which may have been one of love, but there was none, uh, it was not of one of communication. They simply didn't talk with each other. Yitzchak was busy with his things, Rivka was busy with her things, and there was no discussion about the nature of their relationship and the nature of the children. Even when she, they were misfollowed, they did it in separate corners. In separate corners. That's, that's because they were from. Uh, <laughs> the Ramban says, says that when Rivka was told that Rav Yavod she didn't tell it to Yitzchak. 
She didn't even tell it to Yitzchak. She was a very private person. And Yitzchak was a very private person. So they didn't discuss anything of this sort. And not only that, perhaps, if you look previously, and let me just check it quickly. When they, when they, Vayev Yitzchak es Esav Kitzayed Befiv, Rivko Heves es Yaakov. Even their, even their favoritisms were disproportionate. Isn't it? The, the love of Yitzchak for Esav is an Ahava Hatluya Bedavar. The love of Rivka for Yaakov is an Ahava Sheinatluya Bedavar. The different kind of relationship that they have with each other. So, and the, the truth is that there is not necessarily a, a conflict between them. Not at all. What, the, what, what is true, however, is that they could have been complementary to each other, and they weren't. There's a difference in character, mind you, between, between Yitzchak and, and, and Rivka. Look, look at the personalities. Uh, Yitzchak is reflective, meditative, thinking. Avram and Yaakov similarly are more the thinking types rather than the <laughs> active go-getter types. Yeshev uh, not ready to go out and meet events, although Yaakov and Abraham, when they had to, got up and did things. Yitzchak is far more thoughtful, involved in himself. Uh, Yitzchak is a man of inner struggles. He, he has a problem. He will not leave Eretz Yisrael. It will involve him too many things. He is willing to be sacrificed. It's a good question. If HaKadosh Baruch Hu had told Yitzchak to sacrifice Yaakov, could he have done it? I mean, of course, the, the immediate answer, of course, the HaKadosh Baruch Hu told him. What about the inner reactions? From the structure of the personality of Yitzchak, as he comes through to us in the pages of Tanakh, would he have been able to be the one to show Avas Hashem, Akedah, What was the reason for the Akedah? Because this was supposed to be the model of the heights to which Avas Hashem must reach. Not everyone can do it. Why didn't HaKadosh Baruch Hu choose Yitzchak? Maybe he couldn't choose Yitzchak. Maybe Maybe Yitzchak was not the type who lent himself to be chosen for this. Because Yitzchak may have been too quiet and too soft. And Abraham, who was also a, a reflective person, the discoverer of the, the one of the first one to whom Akadosh Baruch revealed himself, nevertheless had the inner strength and the strength of character to be able to do it. Uh, in, in many ways, you, 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 you find these differences. Abraham and Yaakov uh, managed large families. Many wives, two wives, in one case, four in the other case, uh, had many children. Uh, Yitzchak had only one wife. Uh, it's enough, Mark Alvin says. I hope my Mrs. Alvin isn't here. Uh, uh, only one child. Uh, and one, two children, but only one birth. Does, and look, Yitzchak doesn't even choose his own wife. Doesn't even she has a shotgun do it. Yaakov Avinu doesn't have a shotgun doing it. Yitzchak has a shotgun for it. Rivka, as I mentioned before, she's a great manager. She's a woman of action. Uh, she makes a dreadful error. She mistakes Yitzchak's reflectiveness and thoughtfulness as pe total passivity. And therefore, she doesn't talk to him because she thinks, I can push him around. He's plastic. I can do whatever I want with him. And because she loves Yitzchak, she decides that she has to do everything for him. I won't even give him a chance to do it for himself. Maybe there was too much Ahava there. Who knows? She thought, he said, that's the kind of person he is. He can't do things for himself, so I'll do, I'll do it for him. I won't even discuss it with him. It's my responsibility. I'm the, I'm the aggressive one. She comes, don't forget, from Canaan. 
She comes to the family of Avram Avinu. She hears about only one son getting the Birchas Avram, the covenantal blessing, and was told that by So she mistakes Yitzchak's relationship with Esau as being an unfortunate lapse of favoritism by a man who should know better, but he means well, because I love him, I will do everything for him. When really it is only, as we know, Yitzchak looking to be Mekar of Esau, knowing it all along. So from this point of view, Yitzchak is too quiet, Rivka is too pushy, too determined, too resolved, too active. And the remarkable thing is that you find a hint of all of this, and I think this is what the Nitziv really says. At the very beginning of their relationship, you find an omen, a tragic omen for what is come to come in years and years ahead. When Rivka first sees Yaakov, Vatikach and that veil is the symbol of a blockage of communication between the two forever after. That veil was more than just a sign of modesty. It was a symbol of a lack of communication between husband and wife. And so that unlike the relation of Abraham and Sarah, who apparently talked about everything, if we read their relationship, in constant communication. Yaakov and Rachel and Leah talked openly, talked about Lovana, talked about Yitzchak. It was constant conversation. Not so with Yitzchak and Rivka. There may be reasons. Rivka may have felt inferior. Look at the home she came from. Look at her Yichas and look at Yitzchak's Yichas between Lovan and, and, and Avram. And who knows, maybe, maybe Yitzchak's love for Rivka, maybe he felt guilty that he didn't love her enough because his love for his wife was also a Tliya Bedava. It was a mother substitute. I must tell you that in my experience, uh, my 25 years in the rabbinate, I'm not going to compare it to yours because you're in it right now, so it's fresher for you. I have found that this problem of communication is a quite serious one. Communication doesn't mean conversation. People talk, but talk is generally static. I'm talking about real communication. It's a very difficult thing to achieve, but I must tell you there's also a danger of the reverse. One of the most remarkable experiences I had in counseling was when a young couple came to see an my shul, a firm couple, I knew them from the neighborhood, a fine couple. They came to see me, and they were having great difficulty. I remember we told them they were in my home on 86th Street. And they talked out their problems and talked and talked and talked. There was no problem with communication there, obviously. They talked endlessly. And, and I found that what was their problem? Each one, like a gribbled. I, I'm not sure of the nature of our relationship. And she said, I'm not sure that our relationship is of the proper quality. And he said, I'm not sure the relationship is on a high enough level. We don't relate this way. Until I discovered that they're both social workers. <laughs> professionally, professionally, they were geared to communicate and analyze the nature of relationships. But Vastud God, he married one social worker off to another, and I told them, you remind me of the patient who starved to death, although the disease was not fatal, because the nurse kept on putting the thermometer into his mouth until he starved, and there was no time to eat because they were taking taking temperature. Your relationship, there's so much communication going on, you are so concerned with how you relate to each other, you have no time to relate. You're, you're, you're spending too much time analyzing. There is such a thing as being overly analytic. And when you are overly analytic, you break down a whole relationship which has its own integrity, and it crumbles. But I think that that's rare, and usually is the reverse. Last case. Yaakov and Yosef. 
We've discussed husband and wife. Let's go to parents and children. I've always been troubled, as has, I suppose, everybody. I'm still troubled. <laughs> now I think you're troubled, huh? I've always been troubled with the following question. Yosef was away from Yaakov after he was sold for 22 years. They didn't communicate. They didn't, until Yaakov came back uh, to Mitzrayim, came to Mitzrayim. Why didn't he contact him? The Akedah asked the question, the Ramban asked the question, the Abba asked the question. Yaakov, Yosef should have, when he became to Mitzrayim, he became a Bichat, he became a Shani Lamela. He could have taken a postcard and written, Dad, I'm in Egypt, come to Cairo and see me. Come here, send a telegram. It's only a six days journey, the Ramban says. Six days, some say three days journey. Why didn't Yosef do Yosef? I mean, the favorite son. It's a lesser touch of the cycle. I mean, why, why the refusal of, or the failure of Yosef to contact his father? This is, the, this is the favorite son, and he could have done it. And yet the question is here, why no? Same question I asked before. Why is there no censure? Why no word in the Torah that Yosef made a mistake? If not direct, I don't even find implied censure of Yosef. Nothing. Maybe there is. Tell it to me. I can find nothing in the Torah in the subsequent story, uh, in the Seder's following Vayesha, um, which means really Mikates, Vayigash, and Vayichi. I can find nothing which speaks ill, indirectly as well, of Yosef Hatzadik. In fact, we call him Yosef Hatzadik. I have another Kasha on Yosef. What does he name his two sons? Menashe and Ephraim. Why? Menashe, Kinashami, Yolokim, is called Amoli, is called Beisovi. Thank God I forgot my father. And Ephraim, Ki Ephrani, Beretz, Beretz Anyi. Now I know all the drushes. I've given them, you've given them. If you haven't, you will. Uh, all the drushes. But back to Pshuta Shomikra. What is Yosef saying? I'm glad I forgot. I'm glad I forgot. I, I'm, I'm putting the past behind me. And this is a symbol. Menasha that I've forgotten, my miserable past, Ephraim that I've made a new beginning, I'm turning over a new leaf. That doesn't sound good. Why, why is Yosef, not only why doesn't he contact his father, why is he so bitter against his father? Brothers Fashtaya, well, why the father? Second question, what did Yaakov Avinu do to deserve this kind of action? 22 years the man is an oval. Why did he deserve it? There's a, there's a great deal of pathos. I don't want to, to go into it, but you, you know the Pesukim as well as I do. His availers, his feeling, his constant reference during the time the brothers are visiting, that I, I had one wi I have a wife and one child, and he's gone too. You, you, you know, any, with any sensitivity, uh, it's not only the Yidden and the, and the Vibrish issue who cries. I cry. It's, it's, the story has any, a universal appeal. It's timeless. I'll answer the second question first, and that is that Yosef not contacting Yaakov Avinu and keeping him in the dark and in such a tragic situation was Mida connected Mida because this is what Yaakov did to Yitzchak. Yaakov left Yitzchak and he made no attempt to contact him for 22 years. Not once did he communicate with his father. He didn't send that telegram too. Hi, Pop, I'm here. No way did he send a message to Yitzchak. Yitzchak had no way of doing it. Gemara in, in, uh, in Megillah. Gemara Megillah quoted by Rashi. No doubt 
that when Yaakov heard he had a surge of resentment and he never bothered had all this power at his command and he never called me once never made any attempt to contact me but I think that almost simultaneously with the feeling of resentment that builds up in Yaakov Avinu must have come a deep moral realization that it's my fault I'm guilty I'm guilty how do I know look at Memvav Memvav Pasekalev what does he do? What about a of Abraham? The answer is no. What is he doing? He is apologizing to his father. Now I understand what I did to your father. I offer a carbon of Yitzchak. Doesn't matter which, which then God is he going to offer a carbon to? Obviously, either you say a of Abraham or of Yitzchak. Well, why? Now Yaakov realizes, now that it was done to him, he knows what he did to his father. Now, I remember hearing a verse from Rabbi Wahlberg, the final of Racha, on Enoach, Vacham, Aviknan. He says, What is the relation of Vacham, Aviknan into this story? I mean, others were fathers of other, uh, of other children. Because Ham, being a father, should have understood the feelings of a father and not done it to his father. Which is a very sensitive. I, does he really? I heard it from Rabbi Wolberg. All right. So, try Rabbi Hirsch. But it, it, it remains a very trenchant and sensitive note. The same thing is true here. Yaakov Avinu realizes that it was his fault. He has no longer any resentment against Yosef. And he apologizes, as it were, to the spirit of Yitzhak Avinu. Pardon? It certainly does not excuse him. No, by no means. I didn't say it does. I want to first explain why 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 did he deserve this? The Musa Haskell, of course, is that how we treat our parents is exactly generally how our children would treat us. And my experience has been that children learn very many things from their parents' actions, amongst them the patterns of Kibadavaim. This is my pshat. In If you will be you will respect your parents and your children will see it, then your days will be longer because they will act to you in the same way that you acted to your parents. These patterns recur, and therefore the days that you have will be longer and happier days instead of fakir the yarn. So <coughs> the same thing is true here. But of, as you say, all of this does not explain or justify the actions of Yosef. It is not the job of children to punish their parents. It is true that many children see it as their life's destiny to punish their parents. <laughs> Most are successful, uh, but that's not really their task or their job. The answer that I'm going to offer to you, and this I blame no one for, no Rishonim, no Achronim, no Frumma, no Friar. This I'm cutting myself loose and giving you my own interpretation. The answer is found in the ability to put yourself in somebody else's shoes, to try to understand the situation not from your point of view, but the point of view of the Zulas, of the other person. And I think that that may be the key to the whole story. Putting yourself in a situation of another character and remembering that there are things we know 
that they do not know. Thus, we, the readers, those who study Torah, we are aware of Yaakov's love and his loyalty for Yosef and how the brothers deceived Yaakov. This is, this is part of, as the, as the outsiders listening in, we know this story. But in order to understand the actions of Yosef, we have to see it not from our point of view, but from his point of view. And that is what requires a bit of analysis. In that question, the entire question is reversed. It's topsy-turvy. The question is not why didn't Yosef contact Yaakov for 22 years, but why didn't Yaakov contact Yosef for 22 years? For Yosef, this is the overarching question which I believe explains his conduct from there on. A case can be made for Yosef believing that Yaakov was an accessory to the crime. I know it's, it sounds uh, shocking, but let's think about it from Yosef's point of view. Let's analyze four incidents. Number one, in, in, in Bresha Islamid Hay, the matter of Ruvain and Bilha, right? After Rachel dies, uh, Yaakov moves his, his Mishkov into the tent of Bilha. Reuven is very upset, stands up for the covenant of his mother, and he goes into the tent of Bilha, Yishkav is Bilha, and Chazal say in Shabbos, Nunhei, Kala Omer, Reuven, Chota, and Alatoa, Rashi quotes him, uh, what Rashi, doesn't mean that he's not Chote, obviously he was Chote. What, what, is, what is Rashi, what does the Gemara mean? It was not, a, it was not an Arayas Chait. It was not an Arayas Chait. And I think that, uh, you know, that Pshuta Shomikra is the same way. What he was doing, was something he tava et elbon imo. He took the cudgels up on behalf of his mother. To Mela, you didn't want to stay with Leah because uh, uh, you preferred Rachel their sisters. But for a for a for a for a my Mesharis, for a Bilha, you're gonna neglect my mother. That was the reason for coming in. And the Nitziv says he placed his bed in front of the door so that Yaakov shouldn't be able to get into the tent. Also, perhaps he was protecting his own bechora, his own primogeniture. But the sleeping in the tent was primarily a sign, the primogeniture, that he was, he, I, the Uvein, am the successor. I am the Bechor of Leah. And the Bechor goes to me and not to anyone else. So it is not a sexual act. What then is it? It is a political act. What we are speaking about is who takes over the chieftain, the, 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 the role of the chief of the tribes of Yaakov, the tribes of Shifta Yisrael. What was the reaction of Yaakov Avinu to this specious form of arrogance? by his oldest son. Because it was the chayt, he had to do tshuva for it. Chazal are full of uh, talk about tshuva. Yeah, of course. It's also the Torah. Uh, <laughs> two words. Vayishma Yisrael. Vayishma Yisrael. I hear. You know, I know where you're coming from. I hear. So, Reuven takes such a forward, aggressive act against an old father interferes in his personal life, preempts the throne, or does things in Shadoi Yosekein, and by Yishma Yisrael, nothing more. Next, the story of Yaakov giving Yosef the Ksonis HaPasim. What does that mean, Ksonis HaPasim? What, what is the code of many, what is the show, code of many, many colors? It means, of course, it doesn't mean that you gave him a, a very nice blazer and a sports coat. This Ksonis HaPasim was simply the symbol of office. It means you are going to be my successor as the head of the tribes. When the an investiture, correct. Uh, third, third, when the chalomas take place and the brothers come to tell, and, and Yosef, so 
in an, such an unselfconscious way tells his father about this great dream of everyone bowing down to me. What is what is the father's reaction? Vayigar bow others. Oh, doesn't say vayishma others, but vayigar bow others. Suddenly, Yaakov stands up and says, "No way, no way. This I won't permit." Silences him. What a different reaction. Now Yaakov is an activist father, no longer a passive father. What might Yosef have thought when he got this ga'ara, this rebuke from his father? It's this father who never rebuked anyone. This father who with his children was a very soft and gentle man who at worst says, I hear, I hear, that probably he's changed his mind and the Bechora will not go to me and that coat will be taken away and it's going to go to Reuven or to Yehuda or anyone else, but I'm finished. Because when Reuven did something that was dreadful, all I had was a dream, and I innocently shared my dream, and I get this kind of rebuke, there must be something else going on, and maybe, maybe it's not good. And when my father finds out about the jealousy and the hatred of my brothers for me, the kinna and the sinna, the aviv, shamar zadava, does he say a word? No. No, it doesn't say a word about Hashem. Only Shomar has a devil. And then the clincher in Lamed Zion. The brothers are going out. The brothers are going out. Lamed Zion, Yud Gimel. Ve'yechuel echav liros eson avim b'shchem. Ve'yom yisrael yosef al-lechecha roem b'shchem. L'cho ve'eshlochacha aleyem ve'yom aleyneni. Right? So he sends him to Shchem. That starts the whole tragedy. The whole problem starts because he comes to Shchem. The brothers gang up. They sell him. Hence all the, the further development of the whole story. Why did he send him into the lion's den? And Rashi says, And the Balayatesis, the Meshav Skenim say, Why did he send him there? Tesis gives an answer. Because they stay there, it'll definitely be bad. If I send Yosef, maybe he'll get into trouble, maybe he won't. Saying, so Suffolk does not outweigh a Vadai. What a calculus. Maybe, maybe Yaakov was right, but Yosef, from his point of view, I was sent into this. And who, by whom was I sent into this? By my father, who, who, when it comes to my very simple misdeeds, so maybe as a kid I acted up, what happened? By Yigar. My brother moved in, into his wife's tent. By Yisrael. When they, when they hated me. I have no, no other alternative, no recourse but to conclude that Yaakov changed his mind and that the Ahava he had for me has been withdrawn and no longer a part of it. On the same matter, Shrem that Ashbam says, that Shrem was the place that if they go, it's a Makam Sakana because they, because the, the, because the Bnei Yaakov killed Shrem and they're going to get back at them. He even asked that Ashbam, he says it's correct. He, he endorses what Yosef, Rabbi Yosef Kara says. And when the brothers strip him, strip him of the Ksenis Pasim, and they throw him into the ditch and sell him, where's the father? Why didn't he come and help me? You and I know that the story they gave to Yaakov was that he was killed. But Yosef doesn't know that. As far as Yosef is going, again, put yourself in his position. He only knows that he was taken for a ride. He was sent into this by a father whose changing favors he had suspected, and the father never looked for him. 
in 22 years, his father never reported him to the Missing Person Bureau of Ancient Egypt. There was no attempt to contact Yosef, no attempt to save him. I'm being sold as a slave, starved, tormented, humiliated. Where is my father's great love for me? Only one conclusion, that Yaakov was an accessory for the entire sordid event, that he changed his mind, that B'nai Leah are now being the favorites over the B'nai Rochel, and Yosef is out, having no idea of the Chayarach Allah's story, no idea of the great and long Avelis of Yaakov Avinu. In the years in jail, he must have brooded over this turn of events more than once and come to the conclusion that I'm out, I'm finished. And therefore, when he finally attains success, for very good reason, Yosef says, Kinashani Yolakim, as Kolamoli, as Beisavi, and Hiframi Yolakim, Be'eretzani. I don't have to have any drushes. All the drushes are, are of no significance compared to what psychologically is the only understandable conclusion that Yosef could have come to. I think it's the pshat, and all else is pshat. You know, we can hardly blame Yosef if he's slightly paranoid. Because in jail, he must have spun this web of conspiracy about Yaakov, the father who always favored. Now, I try to get a pattern. If, if, if I were Yosef, I, I was trying to think. Uh, this I had developed before. Coming up for this particular shear, I try to think to myself, all right, let's, let's play the game. If I were Yosef, and I regard myself as not terribly crazy, mildly paranoid. After all, in my position, I have to be. Uh, but how would I how would I react if I were put in the position of of Yosef? Tell you how I would react. So this father of mine, whom I love so dearly and who loved me, <coughs> he always feared that he's going to lose some of his children. That some of his children, maybe one, will be Yosef at Harbazadah. Why? Because my father must have feared that his family will repeat the family pattern of the last two generations. Avram lost Ishmael. Yitzchak lost Esau, probably saw Yaakov, thinks Yosef, Yaakov thought to himself, I too am going to lose somebody. This is the Gemara Psachim, you find in the Targum Yenison and Vayachi, that Yaakov tosses on his deathbed and is worried, Shem tosi, he says, Avram lost Yishmael, precisely. So even, in, so in other words, the suspicion, or rather the, the, the Hanukha that Yosef makes, that Yaakov was always worried about, this is true. He really was worried about it. And the children had to, re, had to reassure him by saying, Shema Yisrael, meaning our father Yisrael, Tamechad, and he had to answer, Bore Hashem Kvod, oh, you're all with me. But this must have been pressing. You know, the, the idea of bad blood is scientifically wrong, but psychologically it's a fact. We all think that way. You look at you look at the child of someone you know whom you don't like, you say, oh, a chip off the old block. Uh, my, my, my father had this problem, my grandfather had this problem, I'm going to have this problem. Sometimes it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You work yourself up and you actually repeat, not because you have to repeat, but because you talk yourself into the fact that these patterns must recur with a certain fate and a certain destiny and cannot be changed. Yaakov Avinu really was worried about this all along. Yosef was aware of it. Uh, which son? Now, Yosef thinks to himself, if Yaakov has to decide, who am I going to lose? Let me look at them closely. Which son am I going to lose? Well, go back. Did Abraham love Yishmael? Did he? He sure did. 
Kodesh Baruch Hu had to tell Yitzchak at the Akeda, the Avram at the Akeda, Kachla as Bincha, right? Yes, Shnei Bonim, Zichitcha, the Bar Kolefi, Asher Ahafta. I love both. See, Yishmael was a beloved son, and he lost him. He lost him. Yitzchak loved Esav, and he lost him. What's a sadah shavah between Yishmael and Esav? What's what's a sadah shavah? No from kite answers now. Not that they were over the very desire. Which is correct, but that's not. Each of them, compared to his brother, was a flamboyant character. Aggressive, charismatic, full of the devil, outward, extroverted. Yishmoel was an ish, was, was a, was a, was a, was a, was a peda adam. Peda adam should not be translated necessarily in the Yiddish terms, but a man you know, was ran, yodai bakoil, out, a mixer, a social, social personality. And 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 uh, Yitzchak, we know it's uh, Yosef Aholam. Yaakov, wait, 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 wait! You're anticipating. Uh, you're quite right because you're anticipating what I'm going to say. Um, Yaakov, Yaakov, compared to 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 Esav, passive, colorless, blank, pale. He's an Ishtam Yosef Aholam. Esav is an outdoorsman, a sportsman, a great athlete, hunter. You know, and so Yaakov probably thinks to himself, Edomanishalam. Each of them lost a child, and lost a child that he loved, and lost a child who was the more extroverted, the more active, the more charismatic. Now Yosef thinks to himself, look at our family. Who is the most extroverted, the great charmer, the one he loves? Me. Maybe that's why he picked on me, because he suspected I'm going to be the one to fall away. History repeats itself, precisely. The recurring pattern from one generation to another. Yosef now justifies his suspicion of his father's betrayal by saying, look, this is what he thought. He thinks that I am the one who's going to fall away and be Yosei Latarbisvah. Therefore, after Vayigabal Oviv, we read Oviv Shomar not as Rashi interprets it, knowing the whole story, that Shomar is saying, ah, maybe it's going to come true, but quite the reverse. Shomar Asadavar, he's holding a grudge against me. He feels that I have betrayed him, by saying that they're all going to bow down to me and now he's going to show me what really is going to happen and that's why he sent me to Shem and to get me into this trouble. Thus note Yaakov, Yosef's reaction when he meets the brothers. I don't want to go through it now because time is they go through the meetings of the various meetings. How's your father? But there's no, there's no kirva nafshit. There's no feeling of, of warmth. There's no feeling that, you know, this is my father too. It's a question. He's not saying anything wrong. He is inquiring. He wants to find out what's happening. Doesn't ask. In fact, in the beginning, he doesn't ask about Yaakov. In the beginning, he doesn't even inquire about him. He doesn't even care. He care. He's afraid to ask about him. He doesn't want to know. In, in later on in the second conversation, he cries. But the crying appears to me more like <coughs> self-pity as he remembers his anguish as a boy. And he still can't excuse his father. The next one, there's no sign of change. And only it's at one point he asks about Yaakov almost sarcastically with no, with no softness. Really? You're, you're no longer worried about him? It's only in the third encounter in Vayigash, in, in Memdalad. In Memdalad, Posekut Ches and on. Memdalad, I lost him. In Vayigash, beginning of Vayigash. It's only there at the beginning of Vayigash that you begin to note, and which which ends in the climax of what what does what does what does Yehuda tell tell to him? 
Yosef suddenly realizes that Yaakov thought he was dead. All his resentment all these years were lashav. It was all it was all unnecessary. It was wrong. It was a bad trail. Really, for 22 years, Yaakov thought, and my father thought, I'm dead. And all this conspiracy that I spun, it was paranoid. Nothing of the sort. He was told a, a false story. And that is why they did this. How am I going to do it? And then, at that point, and he breaks out crying, and he says to them, Ani Yosef ha'od avichai. Ah, what a terrible mistake I made all these years. Terrible mistake I made all these years. Because I thought that he didn't contact me because he disinherited me. And he chose someone else over me. And now I see that it was all a dreadful error. Now, how, what's that? They came true? Side the point. I'm not, it's not my topic. But no, those are irrelevant. The point is here, we're discussing only why he didn't call him. And my answer is, he thought, why didn't he call me? And from his point of view, again, what I want to point out, from his point of view, if you look at it only from the, if you, if you can put yourself in the skin of your interlocutor instead of yourself, then the answer is, we know, we knew, he did not. And Yaakov is as much a victim as Yosef, and Yosef is as much a victim as Yaakov. If you want to use an Agoda, and here I've been going only Chumash, if I were to use the Agoda of Chazal, then I would say that Vayaras Agolas Sheshalach Yosef. You know what Rashi says, quoting the Gemara. He saw the Agolas because of Egla Rufa, which means this will be a sign to you, Father, that the last thing we studied. So my brothers are not telling you a lie. It's Nishayisketach, but really, uh, I'm here. I would give two different interpretations. I would say, in accordance with what I'm saying, yes, he sent them the Egla, the, the Agolas as a sign for the Agola Rufa, but I think that Yosef was giving two subliminal messages to Yaakov Avinu. First, if I was ever, if you were ever in doubt, Father, about my loyalty to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, which you are in doubt all the time, even on your deathbed, it turned out, if you were ever in doubt about my loyalty and afraid that I'm going to be the one to be Yetzel Atarabisra, here is the Agola, the symbol of the Egla Arutha, the symbol of Talmud Torah, 22 years in Egypt, and I've climbed the social ladder and the political ladder, and I'm still learning. I'm still in Talmud Torah. Second, it was an excuse why Yosef, Yosef now realizes the story, and, and Yosef now is afraid that Yaakov, finding he's alive, will say, why didn't you call me? He sends him the Egla Arufa. The Egla Arufa, as a sign, was, was an excuse why he didn't contact them all these years. The Egla Arufa is given by the Zikna Yo'ir, Shepatanuha, Patanuhu, Belomazonos, Ubalo Lavoya. I too am my tsar thought that you are mafater me. You sent me away without mazonos, but mostly without lavoya. You never accompanied me. You never looked for me. And that is why I didn't contact you. Understand me. Now I realize that I made a mistake. And who knows, but the, perhaps the climax of the story, if you accept this interpretation. The climax goes in, in a very, very symbolic way when the bracha is given to the two sons of Yasef. Remarkable story. I always never fail to wonder about it. So Yaakov puts, puts uh, Menashe, Ephraim to the right, 
Menasha to the left, Sikelis Yadav. Yosef says, no, 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 Dad, you got it wrong. Hey, you made a mistake. He says, never mind. I'm doing the right thing. And he gives him the brother. What's going on here? First of all, why did he, why did he choose uh, Menashe, uh, Ephraim above Menashe? Why? Menashe deserted. Second, why this funny thing? Why didn't he say, listen uh, to his grandchildren, listen, uh, Effie, <laughs> change places. Change places. An old man, he deserted. He can afford himself that request that you change places. Why did he have to twist his hands around? I mean, at that age, probably arthritic hands, it must have been difficult to... What I think was, was going on was a message that he wanted to give him in highly symbolic form. Number one, Yosef, you made a mistake. In your meanderings of your mind, all those two decades and more that you were away, and you thought that the Sada Shava of Avram choosing Yitzchak and Yitzchak choosing Yaakov, that that was because they chose the more passive, paler children, as opposed to the more magnetic and attractive and charismatic and charming ones, as the ones that carry the Bichas Avram, you're wrong. That wasn't the reason. They chose them because they were younger. That's the Sada Shava. Yitzchak was younger than Yishmael. Yaakov was younger than Esau. I have a question why. It was a protest against the whole ancient world and its very strict rules of primogeniture. That only the Bechor is the one who was an Oyved Hashem and not the younger one. They wanted to show it for Keret. So the pattern, if there is a pattern, my son, the pattern is the youngest one and therefore it was coming to you anyway. And that is why I am proving it to you again that in the next generation, I too am choosing the younger one over the older one. So as to show to you, it was not a matter of outer appearance at all, nor was it a matter of charisma. It was because he's younger. Why then do I switch my hands? Because I think Yaakov meant to tell Esau, uh, Yosef, enough, enough, enough of this business of choosing one son and rejecting another, of necessarily assigning the role of Ebed and therefore implicitly rejecting another child as an Oved Hashem purely on the basis of your role in the family or your social station or your outer appearance or your ability to charm people. No more. I give the bracha to the younger one to teach you that it is not appearance, but it was, it was a protest against primogeniture. But I'm not going to switch their places. Instead, I'm going to cross my hands to show you it's a difficult bracha. I am doing it not because this is the really real way I want to make the bracha, but rather that this is the last time this ought to be done. And even now that I do it, it is a bracha for the older one, but it is also a bracha for the younger one. It is also a bracha for the older one. It is not a bracha to one which implies a rejection of the other. The other bichas of Ram was a rejection of the other child. Not now. Gamhu, gamhu goyim. I hear you, that, that this is not going to be a rejection. I am sikeles yodav, not a direct bracha in which the younger gets everything and the older gets nothing. I purposely switch my hands in order to show that this will not be done. So here we have, and that's why that's why Targum says achimen liyodei. See care from the word seichel. He had he, <laughs> it wasn't simply a crossover. It was there was a, there was a seichel to it. There was a shot. There was there was a, there was a a message involved, and that is why he did it. No more discriminating amongst children when it comes to Avodah Hashem. The lessons are clear. Again, there was inadequate communication, this time between father and son. More important, we have to learn to see things in the eyes of our fellow men. And believe me, it is most difficult of all people 
it is most difficult to see things in the eyes of your own father. It's easier to understand your brother, your cousin, your friend, your neighbor, your member, your colleague, to understand our father is in many ways the most difficult because of the whole nexus of childhood relationships which make, it, which make it so difficult to put yourself in your father's place. It is very difficult. It requires great intuitive, great intuitive wisdom. And perhaps even most important, never to prejudge a child for any reason whatsoever. I, I, one, one case that I... I remember very carefully when I was at the Jewish Center and a man told me about the, the, the young son of another person who was a religious man, an orthodox man, went very much within the machina, and a little boy of six, seven, eight refused to wear a yarmulke. Went to a day school. As soon as he came home, he threw off his yarmulke. With anger, threw off his yarmulke. refused to wear a yarmulke. And this particular adult told me, this kid's going to be a shagist. Before his bar mitzvah, he is going to abandon Yiddishkeit. Well, the young man is now about 25, 26, and he has never missed a day in his life of putting on Talos and film, and the whole thing is nonsense. One of the most critical things is never to give up on a human being, never to give up on a child, and never to imagine that what happens in early youth is a sign of what's going to happen later. I can give you an enormous number of examples of kids who started out very poor in school, very poor in manners, very poor in appearance, schleps in every sense of the word, given enough attention, the old man came, what can I do for my son? He's the He said, love him more. Given enough love, enough understanding, enough attention, enough concentration, you can change people. It is simply not true that people cannot change. It's difficult, yes. But if you think that people really can change, you're not a mammon, because there's no tshuva, and there's no mitzvah, there's nothing. But what we learn from here is that never, never to give up on everyone, and second, to communicate, and third, try sometimes to see things the way someone else does. Well, we want to say Yashikov to Rab Lamb, Bachimo, he made us much wiser. And uh, we want to uh, wish you uh, just announced tomorrow that the Daf Yomi is at a quarter to seven, followed by davening in the morning and at Bartor. After the doctor. <laughs> <laughs> can I get a picture of you with Mike? Can I get a picture of you and Alvin and Mike? By the way, by the way, don't don't mention. One, two, three, four. Okay. No, I didn't.